Well, hi, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. And I pray that wherever you are watching from, that you are safe and well. It's so good to have the opportunity to be together and begin this brand new series that's going to be focusing on one of the Apostle Paul's letters in the New Testament, the letter to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians. Our series is called, Who Do We Think We Are? We often hear that phrase, don't we? Who do you think you are? Well, we've deliberately changed that catchphrase because the Bible clearly teaches us that it is in our togetherness, in our sharing together as members of the body of Christ, that we discover our identity and our purpose in God. And the title for this message this weekend is We Are At War. We are at war. And actually, we're going to look at Acts chapter 19 rather than rushing to Ephesians right now. Ephesians, let me just say though, it's been described by one commentator as the most influential document ever written. Well, that might be a slight overstatement, but it certainly is really powerful the way it directs our thinking as Christians, the way that this letter presents the awesomeness of the gospel, directs the way that we should be living. If we're open to the Spirit of God, this letter it really is something of a bombshell. And actually, you can read the whole letter in about 10 minutes. And I'd like to encourage you that each week throughout the nine weeks of this series, why not read the whole letter through and see what God does? Another commentator has said this is a letter for today. And this has got such relevance to us in our current place in contemporary culture as we think about the fact that we are at war. Spiritual warfare is going on all around us. And we're going to see that as in a moment we visit uh, the city of Ephesus as well as later the letter to the Ephesians. So let me read from Acts chapter 19 and verse 1. It says this, While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. The Apostle Paul was like a traveling missionary with various teams, uh, working his way around various uh, prime locations in the ancient world, sharing the gospel. And here's what happens, Acts 19 verse 8. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke, spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate, they refused to believe, and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them, he took the disciples with him, and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks, <coughs> excuse me, who lived in the province of Asia, heard the word of the Lord. Now we've talked about them before, but let's Let's remind ourselves about a famous story. Jack and Jill went up a hill, yes, to fetch a pail of water. Tragically, sadly, Jack fell down and uh, he broke his crown and Jill came tumbling after. It's a familiar story, that nursery rhyme, isn't it? Which means we don't really ask too many questions about it. Why did Jack and Jill go up a hill for water when, as we all know, water is normally found in the valley at the bottom of the hill? And then Jack fell down. Now, this is intriguing. Did he trip? Or was he perhaps pushed? 
We might need an investigation into this. And Jill came tumbling after. Why did Jill come tumbling after? Was it a sense of empathy that she wanted to enter into Jack's distressing experience? And very importantly, where was the hill located? You see, often when we begin a children's story, we say, once upon a time, not quite sure why we say that because it doesn't locate us in any particular time, and then we state a location in a place far, far away. Completely oblique, really, isn't it? If we're going to understand Ephesians, we need to say, once upon a time in Ephesus, in this particular city. You see, the location and setting of a story is really important. And that's why we want to go to that city this weekend. Ephesus, it's an amazing place. Uh, Kay and I have been privileged to go there, and it really is quite a remarkable location to visit. In the ancient world, it was the capital of the Roman province of Asia, where the Roman proconsul resided, a very significant place. It was the chief Asian city in the promotion of emperor worship. It had an important place in commercial uh, trade uh, with a very busy seaport. It was a very prosperous city because of the ports, or rather the port. Ephesus was one of the most three uh, famous cities in the east, along with Antioch and Alexandria, with a direct road to Rome, uh, with a massive um, pagan temple with 127 columns, uh, a temple that was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world devoted to the worship of the goddess Diana or Artemis. But as Kay and I wandered around the ruins of Ephesus, many of the ancient buildings still stand. And we sat in the great theater where a riot took place. It's rumored to have seated 24,000 people. And then we looked at the library, the ancient library, which has been reconstructed there. And we realized that, that 2,000 years ago, the citizens of Ephesus, they, they didn't have social networking or, or the internet, but they had a hunger for information just like we do with their library. We also learned that they battled many of the same temptations and sins that we experience in our day. Apparently, there was a tunnel between the library and the brothel. Unfortunate information, what that meant was that uh, the chaps would say, honey, I'm, I'm going to just go drop off the scrolls at the library and something else was in mind. You see, actually in this city, there was a lot of darkness a lot of spiritual warfare, a lot of what the Bible describes as demonic activity. Now, that can sound a little bit weird, can't it? And some Christians are obsessed with the devil, and some Christians ignore the reality of the devil and demonic forces. It was C.S. Lewis who famously taught that Satan is happy both with those who are obsessed with his existence and those who ignore it altogether. Just a momentary glance at the ministry of Jesus will show us that he often came into confrontation with actual dark powers. And in a day when we are tempted to dismiss the devil as a caricature, a chap with a red cape and horns and a pitchfork in his hand, we need to realize that just as in Ephesus, demonic forces were abroad. So in our day today, 
there are dark forces that are seeking to influence individuals and culture. And those forces are very real and undeniably clever. It's been said, someone said, the devil's shoes don't creak. And we need to be mindful that we are involved in warfare. We don't have to be fearful. We can be confident and we can learn from the Christians there and the foundations of the church in Ephesus. So let's, let's really dig in here and see, first of all, that we too can be people of the miraculous. We can be people of the miraculous. What happened when Paul arrived in that dark city? Well, he found some believers. And then it says, when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. They spoke in tongues and they prophesied. And then later on in verse 11 of the 19th chapter, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. It's really interesting that in this culture where they were really into magic and magic items, God, if you will, used symbols ideas that were prevalent in the city and he redeemed those ideas and suddenly items are being passed around and people are being healed because God was speaking into uh, the minds of those people in a language, in a methodology that they could understand. We too are called to be people who can experience the miraculous power of God. And there's a problem there though, isn't there? Because immediately we know that the idea of the supernatural, which people seem almost obsessed with in our culture today, there are many shows, so many shows on TV that are about the paranormal and the supernatural. And, but the idea can be hijacked as being something that's exclusively dark. And then let's face it, in the church, in the church more broadly, the, the truth that God is a supernatural, for example, healing God, has been hijacked by the touch the screen or some of the touch the screen TV evangelists who say, send me money and you can get the miracle. And that certainly is not only theologically bankrupt, but also very off-putting. And then again, sometimes we have been hungry as Christians for the supernatural because we want the excitement of it all, forgetting that the Bible teaches us that there are signs and wonders but signs point to something, don't they? Signs point to the truth about Jesus. When, the supernatural, uh, when a supernatural event happens, this is not for our entertainment or to get us excited. This is to point to the truth of the kingdom of God. And then there are other reasons. Let's face it, often we have prayed and asked God for supernatural intervention in that situation of ongoing sickness or disability. And quite frankly, we've been disappointed. And we're, we're, we're no longer praying about that issue anymore because we've kind of given up hope, as it were. I want us to affirm again this weekend that as we are attached to the source of the supernatural, and notice, if you will, that the text tells us that God did these miracles through Paul, it wasn't Paul's power. It wasn't magic power in the handkerchiefs. It was God doing what he did through a human agency. 
as we are plugged into the source, if you will, that is God himself, not just the force being with us, but the living personal God, so we can ask for the supernatural. One of the saddest things about Ephesus is as, we, as Kay and I came out of the, the huge theater, there's a, a, a beautiful, the remains of a beautiful road, about 35 feet wide and flanked by columns. And it, it leads up from the harbor of Ephesus um, to the theater. The only thing is, there's no sea in the harbor. That sounds crazy. But what happened is this, the river that connected Ephesus with the sea got silted up, it got blocked. And so progressively over a period of years, Ephesus was separated from its source. We affirm today that God is our source. We have no power in and of ourselves, but we can not only ask for the supernatural intervention of God, but let's say this as well. Let's celebrate as faithful heroes, those among us, even in the Timberline family, who battle long-term illness and disability, and they believe in God's supernatural power, but they haven't experienced it yet, but they're trusting God anyway. They are true heroes. Secondly, let's make sure that we are careful with the name of God. We're careful with the name of God. We read in verse 13, some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish high chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. What a bizarre, what a bizarre episode this is. These Jewish they were like uh, modern gypsy uh, fortune tellers, really, uh, traveling around. And now they're trying to use the name of Jesus for their own purposes. And notice that they said, the Jesus that Paul preaches. They didn't know Jesus themselves. They're, theirs is a secondhand response. Can I just pause for a moment before we say anything else and, and make this clear? It really is not impactful in your life if your parents are Christians, if your brother and sister, if grandma is or was a Christian. The key question is, do I, do you know Jesus? You see, it's not about having a second-hand experience of Jesus. In fact, that's impossible, but rather knowing Jesus for ourselves. But as we look at these seven sons of of Sceva, we see them blatantly misusing the name of Jesus. Now, this might seem a million miles from where we live, but you know, sometimes we Christians do that. We rush in an unfortunate haste to say what we're thinking, and then we quickly say, God told me. Well, God can speak. We affirm that. But sometimes we can rush and think that our opinion, our perspective, is God's perspective. Let's not rush with that. Of course, as we've been reflecting on, we want to be open to the voice of God, but let's not be guilty of misusing the name of Jesus. I'm convinced that every day there are millions of times across the planet 
when people announce, God told me, and God is saying, I didn't. Let's not misuse that name. Thirdly, we work hard for the cause of the kingdom. Earlier, we read verses about the Apostle Paul entering the synagogue, spending time for three months there, and then lecturing for two years in a lecture hall, um, really working hard. And then in his spare time, um, he would have used his occupation as a tanner to support himself. In other words, the man worked so very hard. It's believed that um, in that uh, lecture hall, they would meet daily from 11 till 4 p.m., and uh, which was the time, the hottest part of the day when many were taking siestas, and that the Apostle Paul then used the other hours for supporting himself in his own work. Again, he worked so hard. I want to take a moment to celebrate the many volunteers that we have here at Timberline. And often you show up when you don't want to, and you'd rather roll over and take a bit more sleep. But you tirelessly give yourself to serving, and there are countless examples of that, both within Timberline and through Timberline. Thank God for those who, like Paul, work hard because of the gospel. 19 times the word fellowship is used in the New Testament, koinonia, and every time it's used, it speaks of action, contribution, sharing, participation. Fellowship means doing something. I'd like to suggest that passively doing faith as spectators will never really satisfy. It's not just that the work doesn't get done. Moreover, it's that our own hearts are not nourished by simply spectating. Thank God for those who work hard. And uh, if we don't, we might consider that. Last weekend, if you watched last weekend, I, I was talking about organic acts of service and maybe just um, finding that guy who lives five doors down and sending him a note or an email. I just need to be clear that was just an illustration. We didn't want hundreds of people who live five doors away from people at Timberline to be ambushed by emails. But serving, whether it's through a program or organically, sometimes spontaneously, we work hard for the cause of the kingdom. Let me pause again because the question needs to be asked. Are we simply spectators? Or are we experiencing the true riches and richness of fellowship, which involves participation? Fourthly, we are committed to live authentically. Authentically. We read that uh, as all of this is unfolding in Ephesus, something remarkable happens. Verse 17, when this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. Now, commentators believe that this, this open confession, the Greek word is exomologio, it means to declare out your sins. Commentators believe that um, what was happening here is that because these people were involved in the occult and magic spells, much the power of much of that is around secrecy that they were breaking the power of um, that darkness in their lives by openly confessing 
the lifestyle or talking about the lifestyle that they had lived. They were exposing the darkness. They were getting real. They were being authentic. There's something about breaking the power of our sins, the habits that trap us, the addictions that beckon us, when we perhaps share them with a trusted friend, when we confess our faults one to another, as the epistle of James says. And we don't do that casually. You know, when, when we bump into another Christian friend, maybe, uh, maybe uh, from Timberline, and they say, how are you doing? We, we don't just say, well, actually, let me uh, share with you the contents of my medical report, including the blood work that I had last Tuesday. I'm sure this will be fascinating. That's not the idea. We're not talking about casual encounters. We are talking about in-depth friendships that we have, where we've invested trust, mutual trust. Who knows you? Who knows me? Who knows how we're really doing. And we see here in Ephesus that when the kingdom of God came, openness, reality, authenticity was the result. Well, the last thing is this. We don't mindlessly follow the crowd. Here's what happens because some of these Ephesians, they are upset because the power of God is being shown to be greater than the power of their idol, Diana, Artemis. And you know what? This was bad for business. That's what they were really concerned about. And so we read, when they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in uproar. And then in verse 32, and this is really bizarre. Look at this. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. And most of the people didn't even know why they were there. Hello. Sound a bit familiar? We are people who follow the crowd, like lemmings who were famous for throwing themselves over the edges of cliffs, although apparently that behavior, much of that is the invention of a Disney movie. Actually, lemmings emigrate and they're able to swim, which is why they go over the cliff. But uh, Disney portrayed them as being mindless followers of one another, but none of that is important right now. But we are dedicated followers of fashion. Do you remember the fashion of, uh, among men of wearing their pants low without a belt so that you could see the top of their underwear? And by the way, the word pants here is a little difficult for me because between us, in England, your pants are your underwear. So when, I, when people say pants, I think, oh, we're talking about underwear. In fact, we had some friends come to England. They were at a conference that I was speaking at, a, past, a pastor actually, and we were walking through a crowded area in the conference center and the pastor turned to his wife, who was about 10 yards behind, and very loudly said, honey, I'm just gonna go back to the room to change my pants, which sounded like an announcement about underwear. Again, None of that is important right now. But the low-slung pants, you remember that fashion? You know where that came from? It came from prisons, where prisoners were divested of their belts so that they would not harm themselves. Hence, their jeans, their trousers, their pants, were low-slung. But, somewhat mindlessly, the fashion caught on. We tend to follow the crowd. And the crowd can seem so 
strong, so right, so confident. And the young person who's committed to maintaining virginity until marriage is greeted by stunned looks as if there's something freakish about their choice for purity. And the business person who sits in the boardroom and says that he doesn't want to do or she doesn't want to do business with sweatshops because they're houses of oppression. And suddenly the crowd says, well, the bottom line is the bottom line. Somehow crowds, again, as we've seen in recent destructive history, the crowd can seem so very confident. Just recently, we've been uh, having quite a few visits from wildlife around our house. We've got a ring, one of those cameras at our front door, so we can capture what happens often in the middle of the night. A couple of nights ago, we had a skunk pass by our front door who didn't stop for a visit, and we're pretty happy about that. We've spotted a mountain lion, a bear in recent years. We, we often have deer here and there, but just today, actually, around four or 500 elk showed up. Now, when the deer arrive, if they start chewing our plants and our trees, I tend to just go out and say something like, shoo, shoo, and they're kind of nervous, and so they just take off. So I decided to see if I could dispatch the many elk that were gathered around. And I don't own a gun, but I thought maybe I can try and scare them. And I, I went out and I did my shoe shoe thing. That didn't work. So I decided to impersonate a gun. So I went out and probably much to the amusement of our next door neighbor, I'm wandering around shouting, bang, 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 bang. Now, I just need to tell you that some of the elk just stood there looking at me like, what's with the English guy trying to impersonate a gun? That's ridiculous. But there was one particular elk. I don't know whether elk cuss, but I'm pretty sure junior elk was cussing me out. He looked straight at me and he is grunting and murmuring and moaning. And I suddenly realized he's feeling super confident because he's in the herd because he's not alone, because he's in the crowd. And therefore, he feels like he can use bad language to this gun impersonator. The crowd can be like that. But know this, the crowd can be famously wrong. And in this case, the crowd was wrong just because everyone's saying it. And just because everyone's doing it, doesn't make it right. As followers of Jesus, we are called to be non-conformists. That doesn't mean that we're going to make everything into an issue, but we're told that we are not to conform to the pattern of this world, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, but to offer ourselves as living sacrifices. And in this situation in Ephesus, you've got a ridiculous scene of some people who are yelling, but they don't even know why. The crowd can be confident, but also mindless. Let's be discerning and not just follow in the footsteps of those who shout the loudest. Well, as we draw all of this to a conclusion now, I invite you to first of all pray with me, and then we are going to pray together. We're going to share a fairly well-known piece of liturgy 
um, which is going to appear on the screen. So let's pray. Father, we thank you because as we begin this series in the letter to the Ephesians, we've had the opportunity to visit the city where it all began. And as we've done that, we thank you for your power. We thank you for your power that was at work then. And we dare to ask you for a greater level experience of your power, not that we might be thrilled or excited, but that people might be set free. We pray for those who battle long-term struggles. We pray for an upsurge in healing in our midst and in this community. We also give you thanks and we pray for those who hold strong in faith, even when they don't see that intervention of the supernatural. We pray, Lord, that you'll help us to be careful with the use of your name. Rescue us from wrenching your name into an endorsement, thoughtless endorsement for our own opinions. We thank you for those who work hard for your kingdom here in Timberline and through Timberline. Wherever we are passive, break us out of that spectatorism, we pray. And we ask you, Lord, to help us to build relationships where we can be us and where secrets, the power of secrets, can be broken as we share. Finally, when the crowd is shouting loud, Lord, we pray that you'll help us to have discernment to walk in your ways. Can I remind you before we share this uh, beautiful piece of liturgy together, if you're not a follower of Jesus today, you can make that choice, that decision. Listen up at the end of our time together for further instructions because we really want to help you to make that step. And so now as these words appear, I invite you to pray these words with me. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen.